Well, please now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 31. We have a longer section to look at this morning, Isaiah chapter 31 and and 32. And so I think it will help you if you follow along in your Bibles as I read. Isaiah chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in in a dry place like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness." to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. 
until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Amen. Well, in the first lament in chapter 28, Isaiah gave to the rebellious Judeans a historical marker by which they could measure the veracity of what he said to them. According to Deuteronomy 18, the mark of a true prophet was that what he said came to pass. If anyone presumed to speak in the name of the Lord, but what he said did not come true, Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, states plainly, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now, everything that Isaiah was saying seemed to be so far off, so far in the future, that it was hard for the people in Judah to know if what he was saying was true or not. Isaiah has been preaching big picture warnings of all that would come to pass on Judah and Jerusalem if they did not turn away from their sinful self-reliance and return in humility and repentance and obedience to the Lord their God. But how were they to know that Isaiah was a man sent by God? How were they to know that Isaiah was not one of these presumptuous men who spoke in the name of the Lord, but who truly did not speak the word of God? After all, everything that Isaiah was saying and warning of seemed so counter to how things were playing out in Judah in the days of Isaiah's ministry. I think we we have to be fair here. The kings of Judah were playing the diplomatic game pretty well. They had seemed to have secured their place in the political machinations of the day. They seemed to be playing the game and finding their patron protectors. The economy of Judah seemed to be prospering. The wine just seemed to be flowing, and life seemed to be good for the people of Judah. While the men politicked and schemed, the women, chapter 32, verse 9, could be complacent, simply enjoying fine clothes and joyous houses. But in chapter 28, Isaiah had warned that Judah needed to just look to the north to see the fate that awaited them. Upon the faithless kingdom of Israel, a devastating destruction, Isaiah said in chapter 28, was about to come, and there was to be no doubt in the minds of the Judeans that it was a portent of the things that lay in store for them if they did not renounce their self-reliance and self-satisfaction. It was a destruction that in all likelihood has taken place now that we come to chapters 31 and 
32, it would seem that the destruction of northern Israel has taken place, but it doesn't seem to have struck home with Judah. Isaiah had said to him, if you you want to know what I'm saying is true, then just look, and and Israel will be destroyed, and Israel has been destroyed, but but the people of God hasn't seemed to have taken much notice. And so now, Isaiah brings it closer to home. And he says to them, in, in little more than a year, devastation would come upon Judah itself. Now, this is not Judah being taken into exile. That would still be uh, 150 years or so later. Isaiah is describing here the invasion of Judah by Sennacherib of Assyria, the invasion that is described in 2 Kings 18 that's directly addressed in chapter 36 of Isaiah. It wouldn't be that great future devastation that Isaiah has been warning Judah of throughout his prophecy, but it would be a foretaste of it, a pledge, if you will, of this coming destruction. But more importantly, it was to be a sign to Judah of the veracity of Isaiah's words and the futility of looking to Egypt for their protection. If you remember how Egypt was described last week in chapter 30, verse 7, Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. It was a picture of Egypt as this great boaster. Remember we said that's what the word Rahab means in this context. Egypt, this great boaster who who boasts of her ability to protect Judah and of her faithfulness to Judah and her determination to rescue them from the hands of the Assyrians. But this great boaster's boasts would be empty and worthless. And when the time came and Assyria came against Judah, Egypt would not move a muscle to save Judah. In 2 Kings 18, Rabshakeh, the Assyrian diplomat who came seeking Judah's surrender, somewhat mockingly, but still accurately, described Egypt as a broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. And that is such a beautiful and evocative image, right? Here is Egypt, that it's a a broken reed of a staff. It looks like it will give support and help to Judah, but in reality, it will just pierce their hand through and make their suffering worse than ever. And here, bringing it home, making it all the more definite, Isaiah says to them, this is not something for future generations. This is not something that will happen in in hundreds of, of years. This is something that will happen in just over a year, and they will see and they will know that Isaiah is a prophet that has come from the Lord. All the political machinations will come to nothing, and Verse 14, the palace will be forsaken and Jerusalem will be deserted and they will know that what Isaiah has said is true. Just in a few months, they would see, or maybe better, just in a few months, they would feel the veracity of his words. But as always, it is made abundantly clear here that this destruction is not cruelty on the part of God or neglect because 
he is unable to save them. All the way through, we've been seeing how God would bring hardship upon his people to help them see the foolishness of looking outside of him to find security and satisfaction in salvation. And as always, God uses this solemn warning of destruction as a venue for a promise that simply further explodes our understanding of salvation. Right? And look at what God promises here. You have this situation where the king and his court have been relying on their own wisdom and ultimately making alliances with evil in an attempt to secure their own position. Chapter 31, verse 1, they have been relying on horses and chariots, right? Understand what that means, right? To us, horses are just things of, of recreation. But when he talks about horses and chariots, think uh, Apache helicopters and, and Sherman tanks. I'm not sure if we still have Sherman tanks, but that's the only name I could come up with. Um, think of Think of Humvees, right? This is, it's a description of, of military power, military equipment. That's what Egypt's offering. They have these, these war horses that most muscles are, are rippling, right? Jeremiah talking about the Babylonian invasion from the, top, from the north. We talk about the, the, the snorting of the horses, right? And it's this idea of these great horses whose breath just comes out in vapors. They're charging towards towards Judah, right? And so, so Judah have looked to Egypt. They've seen how much money they spend on their military, how much of their GDP is dedicated to in, in building their military force and making sure that they are unbeatable on the international scene. And, and the king and his court have said, that's, that's it. That's our patron defender. That's where we're going. Right? Remember last week, forget the fact that they were our captors. Right? Forget the fact that they are the people who have done the most harm to the people of God ever in the history of the world. We will go back to our slavers in order to find freedom, they said. But Isaiah describes here how that sinful self-reliance has not just stayed at the top, how that foolishness has not just stayed in the king and his court, but how it has really bled down into society to the point that, that Judah has become this dog-eat-dog -dog society, and the poor have been neglected, and the vulnerable have been abused. It's the same thing, just now writ small within the society of Judah, a same self-reliance, a same determination to be, uh, to guard their own position, but now come down and manifest itself in the society of the day. It's the picture that we were introduced to in chapter 1, isn't it? Chapter 1, Isaiah condemned them. Your princes are, are, are revel, revels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. John Piper once wrote this. He said, I think it's a drastic mistake to think that the deadly influences of a leader come only through his policies and not also through his person. 
This is true not only because flagrant boastfulness, vulgarity, immorality, and factiousness are self-incriminating, but also because they are nation-corrupting. They move out from centers of influence to infect whole cultures. There is a character connection between rulers and subjects. When the Bible describes a king by saying, he sinned and made Israel to sin, as in 1 Kings 14, 16, it does not mean he twisted their arm. It means his influence shaped the people. That's the calling of a leader. Take the lead in giving shape to the character of your people so it happens for good or for ill. Political leaders set the tone for the nation that they lead. It has been said in terms of holiness that a church will never rise above its elders. Neither a nation nor a church will ever, ever rise ethically or morally above its leaders. They set the tone, and so when they sneeze, those they lead catch a cold. And that's what had happened in Judah. As the king and the, and the upper echelon had pursued this, this determination to be, to be self-concerned and self-absorbed and self-satisfied and self-secured, that had come down into the people, and it had created this dog-eat-dog -dog society. But as horrible and twisted as this situation had become, the covenanted people of God, Judah, the the Old Testament church turned away from God, for, forgotten His laws, deaf to His prophets, uncertain that God can keep His promises. Right? As horrible and twisted as this has become, into it comes this incredible promise of God that this will not last forever. And that as horrible as the kings have been, and as horrible as the leaders have been, and as horrible as the society that they have led has become, God says here that He will sovereignly establish a king who will reign in righteousness and whose righteousness will come down to shape the character of the people, and He will establish what Ali Mortier, Mortier called a true aristocracy of character. From the top down, this will be a king who is holy and righteous and just and good and pure and true, and he will lead a people whose character will follow in the footsteps of the king. Look at how Isaiah describes it in chapter 32 here. He says this new king's character will overflow into a whole kingdom of righteousness. A better social order will be established, wherein, verse 5, the fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. But, verse 8, instead the noble will plan noble things and stand secure on noble things. You understand what's going on here. And as we have gone through these laments, we have heard deep and profound insights into the, into the heart of God for sinners. And last week in the fourth lament, chapter 30, we heard those almost unbelievable offers of God's grace for foolish sinners. 
You, you remember after proclaiming to Judah once again just how foolish it is to try and find security and satisfaction and salvation in something or someone other than in God. You remember Isaiah proclaimed the gospel that the Lord waits to be gracious. The Lord rises to show mercy. And as soon as he hears the cry of repentant sinners, he answers them. It was that beautiful, manifold, exalted description of the heart of God for the penitent, not a reluctant forgiveness that has to be wrestled out of the hands of God, not a probation waiting to see if we really deserve it, but a heart that is ready, eager almost, to restore the foolish sinner when he comes back to God. It is that beating gospel heart that runs all the way through Isaiah. It's that beating gospel heart that led the early church to call this book the fifth gospel. These solemn warnings of God's judgment on those who malign His character, on those who doubt His ability to save and seek satisfaction and joy in something, someone other than in God, but bound up with them, intertwined with them, woven all the way through them, these rich passages that proclaim to Judah and proclaim to us that if we give up our foolish ways, we will find a God who delights to welcome the sinner home. What you see here now, in this fifth lament, we zoom out from that close interaction of individuals and God, and we come again to the overarching theme that despite the great faithfulness of His people, the redemptive purposes of God will move along and the day will come when salvation will be secured for the people of God through His messianic King. Right here, Isaiah now moves out from the close interaction of God with sinners like, like you and, and me. And he zooms out again to show us, to remind us the overarching story of the Bible. And everything in the Bible hangs on the work of one man, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, the, the Christ. Right from Genesis 3.15, when God promised that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that, that there would be a son of the woman who would, who would put evil itself to death. From that moment, the whole storyline of Scripture has been about that man. What he would do and, and how he would do it. And it is, it is central to the covenant that God made with Abraham. We know that, that wonderful verse in Genesis 15, 6 that Paul quotes in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and James quotes in James 2. Right, if the New Testament's quoting one verse that many times, you know it's important. You remember what it is, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this was Abraham believing God in God generally, or Abraham even thinking of salvation in general terms. What is it that Abraham believes God about in Genesis 15, 6? It is the promise that he would have a son, and through that son, this great glorious kingdom of the redeemed would be 
established. That's what Abraham believes in Genesis 15, 6, and that is what is counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believes in the Messiah, and it is counted to him as righteousness. Abraham has faith in Christ, and it is counted to him as righteousness. Now, yes, of course, initially, it is fulfilled through Isaac, but it would only ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. That's why in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That Christ, that messianic king, central to the promises that God made with Abraham, but central also to the promises that God made with David. First Chronicles 17, verse 11, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. A promise initially fulfilled in Solomon, but ultimately not fulfilled until the birth of Jesus Christ. You understand, this is the meta-narrative of Scripture, the great redemptive work of the great messianic king who will crush evil under his foot and bring his people back to a greater Eden, back to enjoy fellowship with God, free from sin and free from the effects of sin. And what Isaiah is doing here is he is zooming out now promises of God's faithfulness with the faithless. Isaiah zooms out and he shows us that God is determined to establish this new society that will be marked by righteousness and justice, this new kingdom that will be a place of rest and joy. A place where, chapter 32, verse 18, my people will abide in, peaceful, in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. How will they do that? Through the work of the Messiah. Now, why does Isaiah zoom out to show us this? Well, he does it because if we are to truly turn away from our sin and come back to God for mercy... We need to know that He is able to save us. That the threat of Assyrian aggression was real. It's easy for us, whenever we encounter something like this in literature, to stand aloof from it, and in doing so, to stand in judgment on those that we are reading about. So, to use an example, we can, we can read about the early Reformation in England. We can read about those who wavered back and forth, right? We can think of Archbishop Cranmer, man used by God to write the, the first book of common prayer, a wonderful, beautiful description of Protestant theology, but who recants his Protestantism, but then who in the fire holds out his hand that signed his recantation that it might be burned first because he regretted what he had done. Right, and we can read of men like that, and we can scoff to ourselves and say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Right, I, I wouldn't have done that. Just stand strong, Cranmer. I mean, come on. Don't you know about the hope of the resurrection? Don't, don't you know that 
as we celebrated at, at Ira's uh, memorial on Tuesday that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Don't you know that if they kill you, then today you'll be with Christ in paradise? Come on, Cramler. Just stand up and be a Protestant. We like to think of ourselves that we would have Martin Luther-like stood in the face of the queen and said, here I stand, I can do no other. But of course, we are not facing a brutal monarch or a merciless church. We are facing the prospect of being burnt alive for making the wrong choice. Right? It's why good historians employ historical imagination to try and get into the minds and even into the emotions of those that they are writing about. And we need to remember here that the Judeans are not flat characters in a story that's being told. These are real human beings with real hopes and real dreams and real aspirations and real fears, especially as they lived in the midst of a fraught political environment. You think this political environment is tumultuous and dangerous and fraught? This was, as we said before, this was a society in which every spring the kings went out to war. You didn't even know if your country would last the summer, far less having comfort and security at home. And realistically, Judah's tiny. They're a sitting duck between these two great posturing empires of Egypt and Assyria. And their decision to go and seek refuge in Egypt was wrong, undoubtedly, but surely we can understand it. And so if they were to heed Isaiah's call to repentance and to a faithful trust in God, then they needed to be sure that he could save them. Now, yes, they had the unbreakable word of God, and, and that is enough. But see here the condescending grace of God lifting the curtain of history and reminding them that nothing, absolutely nothing, will get in the way of his saving work and the purposes of, rede of redemption march steadily on regardless of sin or sinners. And that God will do what he has said. As one commentator put it, the image that we are given here of God is that of unperturbed sovereignty. And I, I love that. I think that is exactly right. Isaiah is describing Psalm 115 verse 3, isn't he? Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. The aggression of Syria or the complacency of Egypt would not get in the way of His covenant promises. The faithlessness of Judah would not get in the way of His covenant promises. As John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, God is able to raise from the stone, is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? Regardless of it all, God's sovereignty was unperturbed. The redemptive purposes of God would go marching on. His sovereignty settled and in control regardless of how sinners sinned. And this glorious kingdom would one day be established. And so what Isaiah is showing them is a strong God who is truly able to save, a strong God who will truly provide refuge for them. What Isaiah is showing them is that there is no gamble in coming to God in humility and repentance. Not only will they find a gracious and merciful God, not only will they find in Him a heavenly Father who will restore them from their sin and renew them in righteousness, they will find that that Father is the King, is the King of kings, 
who does all his holy will, who has no enemy powerful enough to defeat him, whose promises cannot not be kept. And you understand that is the great application of this to us this morning. Right? We all have our Assyrias that we face. Real, true, frightening things that threaten us. Things that, that we have convinced ourselves that we must defend ourselves against. And then we all have our Egypts, our false saviors that look so convincing. Right? If only we came to them and trusted in them, then we would be okay. We would be secure, safe, and, and happy. And you understand the only way that you're going to be able to step away from your false saviors is if you know that there is a better place to go. You convince yourself that you are strong and independent. You model yourself as an invictus. And you stand with your chest puffed out, and you say, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But your health will fail, and your will will break. And the strong young man you once were will inevitably lose to the relentless march of time. Your self-sufficiency is a false savior. It is a broken reed of a staff that you hold on to, thinking it will hold you up, but it will pierce you through. But where else can you go? To God whose strength does not fail, whose purposes are not stopped, whose arm is not too short to save, but who will bring all of His promises to their fulfillment, guaranteed. Or, maybe you convince yourself that you can only make it if you drink. The stresses and strains of life, they're just too much, and the only way that you can handle it is if if alcohol numbs that pain and gives you that rest. But it's a false savior. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. It's, it's a Rahab who sits still. It, it boasts of great things. It tells you of how it will make your life better and it will give you rest, but it will mock you. It will rob you of relationships. It will promise you happiness, but it will deliver depression. And instead of giving you refuge, it will just simply sit back and laugh at you. But where else can you go? To God, who is the one in whom true peace is to be found. To God, who knows the difficulties of life in this world to God, the Son who came born of a woman, born under the law, who in his flesh was tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin, to God who says to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And how do you know that he will give you rest? 
because he is a God of unperturbed sovereignty, because God in his omniscience and eternality knows how the story ends, and he tells us here how the story ends, with his messianic king come to do all that God has said he would do and establish a kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness where the people of God rest under the rule of a benevolent king. No more threats, no more false saviors, just peace in the presence of God. And of course, we could go on. There are a myriad of little Assyrias, and there are a myriad of little Egypts. But here is the promise. Not only is God ready to show mercy, ready to extend grace, ready to save those who come to Him in repentance of faith, God is able to save those who come to Him. There is no gamble in putting your faith in God. Individually and corporately, the focus of the people of God must be firmly set on Jesus Christ and His powerful victory over sin and the establishment of His glorious redemptive kingdom. Why did Judah cower before the Assyrians and run to Egypt? It was because they had forgotten Jesus Christ. It was because they had forgotten the promised son of Eve. It is because they had forgotten the promised son of Abraham. It is because they had forgotten the promised son of David, and they thought they had to take matters into their own hands if they were to be saved. Why does the 21st century church look to politicians or programs or progressivism to try and secure its position? because it's forgotten Jesus Christ. And it thinks that it has to take matters into its own hands if it is to be saved. Why do you believe that happiness and security is found in something this world can give you? Because you have forgotten Jesus Christ. And you think that you have to take matters into your own hands if you are to be saved. But listen, the whole focus of who we are as Christians, and there is a clue in the name, is Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do when He returns to bring His kingdom to its consummation on the last day. That is our hope. That is the anchor of our souls. That is our security. So as we begin another Advent season, especially as this world continues its turmoil around us, let's make that our goal to fix our eyes on Jesus more firmly than ever, to let go of lukewarm Christianity, middle-of-the-road Christianity, and fix our confidence not on anything we have done or could do, but only on Him and His perfect, unperturbed, sovereign, saving work. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, forgive us for our wandering hearts and for our self reliance that that weighs us down. Oh Lord, give us a vision of Jesus Christ that would be big and that we would just hide ourselves in him. Oh, help us to see not only that you are ready, willing to save, but that you are able to save. And help us to be so sure of that, that we would never look to something else or someone else for our confidence. Oh, Lord, we don't know what this year will bring, but we know it will bring its Assyrians. 
that will threaten us. Oh, Lord, help us when that happens to simply run to you and hold on to our Abba Father. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.